Welcome to 5-Minute Finance, a podcast that explores topics that are impacting your money. Join us as we discuss what is moving the economy, markets, stocks, and personal finance. This podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Before acting on any financial advice, you should consult a financial professional who can review your specific financial situation. Any opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are their own and do not reflect the opinion of LVM Capital Management. Clients or employees of LVM Capital Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in the podcast. Welcome to 5-Minute Finance. Tyler and Jordan here. Today, we're going to go through some of our capital markets slides. So make sure to check the blog on the website, which will have some charts and some corresponding data behind those. So we'll be going through some of these slides here and maybe follow along with the show notes. So we're going to start with our first slide here, taking a look at the S&P 500 return versus the equal weight S&P 500 return. And Jordan, you want to give some information on that? Yeah, there's a pretty wide divergence happening right now between the S&P being up 9.6% in the first five months and the equal weighted S&P, which is actually down, albeit a half of a percent, but only 227 stocks in the S&P are positive for the year with a median return of negative 1.85%. So certainly not equal as, as far as returns go. Yeah. So certainly a lot of the larger cap stocks driving that return. And we have some data on that in a few slides here, but taking a look at that, that so a lot of market participants would call that this, the breadth of the market is low or weak. And so on our next slide, we're going to look at market breadth has never been this narrow to start the year. So on a year to date basis, the percentage difference between the equal weight S and P 500 and the market capitalization weighted S and P 500 has never been this wide. And when you look at the most recent similar events, when you have this type of dispersion between those returns, between the equal weight and the market cap weighted index, those came during COVID as well as during November, 2008. So they have preceded periods of market stress. Uh, another metric we look at, and I believe we talked about this in our, uh, one of our last podcasts, but the 200-day moving average, you know, what percentage of stocks are trading above or below the end of May, only 40% of stocks are trading above their 200-day moving average. Historically, as you can see from the graph, returns have been below average when that is the case. And then that would make sense as most stocks are going up, returns are generally good, and as a lot of stocks are trading below Again, that usually portends lower future returns, anywhere from 2% to you know 7% over the next month to 12 months. Another point to that is that just fewer stocks are participating in this nice stock market return that we've had over the last six or eight months. Tyler, you were alluding to this, but there's really five, six stocks driving all of the market's return. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, which is Google, Amazon, and NVIDIA. Why don't we talk about their makeup in the S&P? and what returns have been when we see this type of concentration. Yeah, so they now those five companies now make up 24% of the S&P 500 by market cap. This is the highest reading since 2000 and it's above the average of about 14% over the last 20 plus years or so. And it's now three standard deviations above that historical average. And what I think is kind of interesting in this chart that shows the percentage, but also below that shows the returns going forward for the next year when you have a higher concentration in the S&P 500 
And it shows that your returns are just below average. When you have a very high concentration, your returns are lower than average. The historical data here is about a 6% return, 5.88, when you have higher concentration. Whereas when you have lower concentration in the S&P 500, the returns are actually much higher. The lowest concentration quintile, your returns going 12 months forward are almost 14%. So looking at some of the market indicators, investors are certainly being cautious. This can often be a contrarian indicator though. Starting at the top left of the chart here, money is flowing into cash, which sounds kind of funny, but there is a difference between bank deposits and money market mutual funds. A lot of the banking failures were stemming from a withdrawal of deposits and moving into money market funds, um, vastly outpacing most other asset classes, bonds, non-U.S. equity. And U.S. equity, oddly enough, has seen a decline year to date for fund flows. The last time investors were this overweight to bonds was back in May of 20 when we were in the depths of COVID and in the housing crisis of 2008, 2009. So could there potentially be you know, a rotation back into stocks and dollars going to stocks, certainly so. One way we can kind of gauge this is consumer sentiment. And this is the bottom left chart. Consumers are not very optimistic about the outlook. Historically, though, that has been a great time to buy. When sentiment was low, it was during COVID. If you stepped up and bought during COVID, your returns over the next couple of years were pretty good. If you bought at the depths of the housing crisis in 08-09, again, pretty good returns. Lastly, we have Vanguard's projection of returns, and I believe Tyler this is over the next 10 years, uh, forward-looking 10-year returns for different asset classes, both here and abroad, lower than the last 10 years, but very much positive. I don't know if you want to... Yeah, key to this to this table is the expectations for returns in the future are going to be lower, just given one, where valuations are and, and how well the returns have been over the last several years. But historically, expect you know that that roughly nine percent or so in U.S. equities. Right now, Vanguard expecting between four and six percent over the next ten years for U.S. equities, with some pretty average volatility, about seventeen percent, which is pretty close to the historical average. Next, looking at some of the market fundamentals, you know, analysts are starting to revise their projections for 2023. On balance, we look to have positive top line growth. This would be sales growth, though we are projecting or the market's projecting negative earnings to the tune of about 2% with a slight contraction in margins overall as it's just becoming more expensive to do business. This is pretty average, I would say, as far as the business cycle goes. If we're looking at sales or earnings growth, you know, is this late cycle or are we potentially going into recession? Either way, the numbers line up to say, yeah, this is a pretty run-of-the-mill slowdown. Yeah, so not necessarily imminent recession, but certainly in that late cycle, I guess, at least within historical ranges right. for late cycle relative to sales and earnings growth that we're witnessing for this year. Yeah. So we talked about, you know, potentially a modest earnings decline for this year. Tyler, I know there's a lot going on in this graph. Want to try to synthesize this one down into... Yeah, yeah. it's going to be hard to do this on audio, but take a look at the graph. I think what's maybe the most interesting point here is that typically through economic slowdowns, what happens is companies start to remove some of the excess spending that they've had. That that leads to thinner cost structures. I know that's been a big theme of a lot of the companies we follow and a lot of companies in the market in their quarterly earnings calls over the last few quarters to reduce some of that cost. That's a good thing at the end of this is that 
because typically you're, you know, when you get through to the other side and you see recovery and economic growth, you then have a thinner cost structure and your margins start to improve. And that is what leads to better earnings from where they were before the economic slowdown or recession starts. And so what we have right now is the S&P 500 has actually had two consecutive quarters of earnings declines. So a lot of folks in the industry would call that a earnings recession. And we do have a an expectation of another almost 8% or so decline in the second quarter of this year for earnings. So that would be three consecutive quarters of earnings declines. Now they do expect, or the market does expect, for growth to start to return in the third and fourth quarter. So if you're looking at this chart here, it just takes a look at how long it takes for earnings to trough or to bottom, and then how long it takes for the for them to recover past their prior highs. And it can take anywhere from 10 quarters to get to, you know, have 10 consecutive quarters of earnings declines. That's the bottom. And then you start to see a rise up. And then eventually somewhere on average, roughly in that four quarters after the bottom, you get positive earnings relative to where they were before they started to decline. So our next slide stuck in the middle, appropriately titled, where where are we? Is it an earnings recession? Is it a full-blown recession? Or are we somewhere between? You know, the NBER has not come out and said this is a recession. So we'd call this a non-recessionary period, even though earnings, as Tyler said, have been declining for two consecutive quarters now. And the stock price reaction has been, again, very normal relative to what we're seeing for slowing growth, slowing earnings market, you know, was down, you know, 18, 20% last year, a little more for the the NASDAQ, but earnings were up during a recession. We'd expect stock prices and earnings to decline. So again, somewhere between this non-recession, half recession type of market. Yeah. So the data that we're looking at on this chart is, is looking at the median stock price drawdown and the earnings changes during bear markets. So we have two types of bear markets. One is a non-recession bear market and the other is a recessionary bear market. And the average change in earnings during a recession, this goes back to 1872. I'm not sure how good the data was back <laughs> in 1872, but it's down 18% is the average decline. Some of the more recent ones are closer to 15% or so, but let's just say, you know, double digits certainly in terms of earnings declines during recessions. And that also leads to a median of a 35% decline in the S&P 500. Those are recessionary drawdowns, right? 35% decline, yep. 18% earnings decline. In a non-recessionary period, so if we escape a recession here and the economy continues to grow, a non-recessionary period, the average stock price decline is 22% with earnings growing actually 7% during that period. We are currently, the biggest decline that we had from middle of October of last year, a little over 25%. Yep. Yep. And we've had a change of earnings of minus 2%. So we're kind of in the middle of a non-recession and a recessionary periods for bear markets and, and earnings changes. So with that, we have one of the last slides here, the recession debate. Tyler, I don't know if we want to try to go good cop, bad cop on this one. There are a lot of cross currents out there right now. You know, if you're looking at the consumer, you're looking at fiscal and monetary policy, we're looking at earnings growth. Why don't we run through a couple of the 
let's want to do case for yeah, a recession. You, you first. be the you be the bad cop. You're good at that. Perfect. So okay. You start with the case for a recession, I'll, and I'll back it up with case for. There expansion. we go. So a lot of leading indicators, um, manufacturing surveys, unemployment claims, consumer expectations would say, yeah, things are not looking great right now. Nor are they looking great twelve months from now. But you have a labor market that is still very strong, which has led to continued consumer spending. Tyler, haven't you seen the banking crisis that's happening right now? We've had a total of four banks. I know the the size of the banks was quite large, but that does rattle some investors' nerves and maybe shakes up confidence in in lending from banks. Yep. So the other side of that would be consumers and businesses' balance sheets are, are in good shape because they've been able to fund most of their capital expenditures and and balance sheet expansion at ultra low rates over the last 10 years or so. The case for a recession, meaning the banking crisis, meaning lower credit availability, it's not necessary, at least at this point, for them to have to continue to go out and raise more debt at these higher rates or maybe more stringent capital requirements for that. So the fact that they're in good shape maybe dampen that impact on lower credit availability. This is the first time in uh, you know the last at least decade that we've seen a contraction in the money supply. Money was flowing freely for the last decade plus. That's going the other way. We're actually removing dollars from the system again, potentially tightening credit standards. You would think the bond market would blow up at this point, right? Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot of rebuttal for <laughs> for that one, but I, I would say. It, if you take a look at the expansion in money that we've had over the last two years has just been significant Incredible. and well above average. Yep. So it's probably overdue for a little bit of a contraction there. I'll tie these next two together, the inverted yield curve and the fastest Fed tightening cycle in history, meaning the Fed is increasing the price of money. They do this by increasing interest rates on the short end of the curve, meaning federal funds rates, what which banks lend to each other. And this has caused, and I know we've talked about this in previous pods, but an inverted yield curve. You can earn more on short-term, say one, three, six-month treasury bills than you can on a 30-year government bond, which usually leads to a recession, or it has 11 times this has happened out of the last 14, it has led to a recession. So that, again, has been a pretty decent indicator for the last several decades. All right, so two points there. One on higher rates from the Fed. At least on the mortgage side, most of the consumers, I think it's, I don't have the data in front of me, it's something like 75% of, of homeowners have a 4% oh, or yeah. lower. I think it's even higher than that. Yeah, yeah. It's a very significant portion of current mortgage holders have a 4% or lower rate on their mortgage. So really it's just the new home buyer, the marginal home buyer, which is typically in that four to 5 million a year. There's still a lot of consumers that have been able to lock in that really low rate. So that that kind of hits the high rate side of it. The inverted yield curve portion really kind of almost is the market expecting the Fed to cut because they do expect inflation to come down. And so that's the positive side of the inverted yield curve is that expectations for inflation are starting to come down. And we are seeing a lot of that data for inflation start to come down. And you get a lot of these year over year benefits in terms of inflation. Sure. Um, I know the June number, there was a really high June inflation number last year. That year over year number is going to be much lower just mathematically. And so I think you're going to get that for the next few CPI readings, but then it might tick back up. So there might be a little more volatility inflation than than investors yeah. are thinking about. Or, or, But inflation is certainly trending lower. I think that's a positive, in particular relative to Jordan's point of the fastest Fed tightening cycle in history, we do, we do expect at some point that to eventually reverse. Right. 
saving the best one for last. And this seems to be a topic a lot of people are talking about, but vulnerabilities in commercial real estate. Work from home is a real thing. There are massive vacancies in large metropolitan cities. When someone goes to refinance a loan and the bank's looking, well, what's your occupancy? What is your projections for revenue? What type of loan to value we're talking about? That's going to change materially over the next several years, starting this year. But I think it ramps up into 2025 where there's a lot of debt on properties that's coming due. It's going to have to be rolled over rolled over at higher rates, that could pose an issue for small regional community banks, which are primarily lenders to the commercial real estate sector. Yeah, I think obviously that's going to be an issue. I just think it's going to be very slow moving, right? Commercial real estate isn't priced like the stock market every day, and there's not a lot of sales and activity. So you don't necessarily see that on a day-to-day basis, but you are seeing it in some of these large office <laughs> real estate companies that are publicly traded. Those stock prices are already down 50, 60, 70%. So I think the market already kind of sees that as a risk. And usually the risk that leads to really big market declines are the ones that you don't see. Yep. We've been uh, going for quite a while here, so we'll try to wrap things up with our final slide. Market valuation, what is the price we're paying for a stock? Tyler, you want to break this down a little bit further? Yeah. So we're going to focus on two charts here. One is going to be looking at the forward price to earnings ratio for mega cap stocks, which is just the largest eight, large cap stocks, which is the S&P 500, and then small and mid cap stocks. And you can see that the top eight stocks, the mega cap stocks, the forward price to earnings ratio is nearly 30, which is pretty high. Quite high. Yeah. (laughs) Relative to, if you look at the S&P 500 as a whole, which also includes uh, those those, uh, eight stocks, it's about 18 and a half. But it gets better when you get down to the smaller and mid cap range. And by better, I mean lower valuations, small mid cap stocks around 13 times earnings or so. So I think that's where you're going to hopefully find some good values out there in the market. Maybe not in the top eight, although a lot of those top eight are great companies. They have they deserve a premium given their margins, their growth, the quality of their balance sheet. So finding the right balance there, I think, is going to be the challenging part for investors. And then the second chart here on valuations, we're going to take a look at historical valuations relative to their own longer-term averages. So what we show here is that the S&P 500 at that 18 times multiple today, that compares to a 15 and a half times multiple over the last 20 years. So that's a premium to the last 20 years, but where you're getting the discounts are in the equal weight index of the S&P 500 and the small and mid cap stocks. So small and mid cap stocks around 13 times earnings are below their 20 year averages closer to 16. So there are some discounts in the market just not in the top eight stocks right now. Understood. Well, we understand this is a much longer podcast than normal. If anyone's still there, we thank you for for listening. Please send us questions, podcasts at at lvmcapital.com. 